You know, there are still a lot of people who don't believe this bounce. Even though Bitcoin has been going up and is up over 40% in the month in the months of Jan and Feb, there are still a lot of people out there who are sitting on the sidelines and deciding whether they should deploy capital or not. So today we're going to be talking about this bounce. We're going to be talking about um, whether whether it's the right time to be deploying money. And if you are going to be deploying money, what narratives you're going to be deploying. And today is not a normal show. It's our Friday banter. And I've got a, a very, 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 very special guest for you guys. So listen, I'm not going to tell you who the guest is, but let's do this. Get the fuck out of bed, bitch. Go. and shine there's a lot going on by the way by the way let me know what you thought of the pce numbers let me know what you thought of the pce inflation release numbers let me know what you think the effect's going to be on the market i do see you all in the chat i see every single one of you in the chat if you are here just remember to say present let me know that you're present let me know that you are attending class today because today is a big 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 class it's going to be the highest alpha per minute interview on the entire crypto internet I, I guarantee you that and i've got a very very special guest um who's coming to us all the way from japan today so it's going to be a massive 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 show what i need you guys to do is as usual like this show let's get distribution of the show let's build this channel you know that our friday advances i've got to show you something i was looking at our friday advances earlier look at the 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 parabolic growth that we're experiencing in the friday advances show you got to see this okay so we went from 46,000 to 65,000 views to 75,000 views. Let's see if this video can actually beat those, uh, let's beat the trend. Let's see if we can put in some higher highs. And again, just a reminder that our Friday advances are brought to us by our partners at NordVPN. And I keep saying to you guys that if you are in crypto, you need to be masking your identity. You don't want to be revealing your IP address. If you reveal your IP address, you're pretty much giving away everything about you. You're giving away your location. You're giving away a unique address that your computer is broadcasting. And when you do that, you're giving it away to DeFi protocols. You're giving it away to exchanges. And if those exchanges get a subpoena from the government, they're going to have to hand over your IP address and maybe even all your details. The way, the way to circumvent this is very simple. Get yourselves a VPN and use NordVPN because our channel sponsors, they're also the crypto VPN. And if you want to protect your crypto for $3.35 a month, if you're in this game and you're not willing to protect your crypto for $3.35 uh, $3 a, month, a month, you are in the wrong game. All right, guys, let's get into it. There's a big, big, big guest here today. Today, I've got all the way from Japan, I've got Arthur Hayes. Arthur, welcome, my friend. How are you? Thank you. Awesome. Excellent. Listen, I was reading I was reading your blogs. I love your blogs. Um, and I was reading your skiing blog, um, the one that was around, um, uh, it's called, I think it was called Be Present. And it said um, you were talking about how you were skiing. And I mean, I, I was so in the story about how fast you were going and you know how you were thinking about your beer and your your burger and then there was a crack in the ground and you you, you know you took a jump and you missed the crack and you fell but it was all okay 
And I think you focused on the, the importance of being present, right? Um, but before we get into it, let's talk about skiing. How's the skiing going there, man? I mean, today was another epic powder day. It's super deep, super fluffy, nice and cold. And yeah, just another epic day of shredding out there. So, I mean, you've been there for six weeks. So you're just shredding, waking up in the mornings, take, getting taken up the mountains and then just shredding your way down all day long. Absolutely. That's all I do. And thinking about crypto, how to make some more money. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Listen, so listen, speaking of your blogs, I read your the, this blog, which was called, I think it's called Bouncy Castle. And I remember thinking, yeah, I was, at the time we were super bullish. I think you were a little bit hesitant. You were, look, I'm, I'm, I think you ended this off by saying you're happy to miss the bottom here, but you're looking for, for more confirmation. And this was written on January 19th. And then I think it was a couple of weeks later, so two, three weeks later on February 7th, you published this one called Be Present. And this one ended very differently. This one ended with, I think, five points. And I quickly want to go to the five points. Said, Step one, correct thought. Step two, raise cash. Step three, buy Bitcoin. Step four is the one that I like the most, which says, let's go shitcoining. And I think step five was the unwind. So I'm very keen to, to go through your thought process between the first one and the second one. What happened in those three weeks? Well, I think the, I had a really good conversation, as I talked about in, in the article with a good friend of mine who, you know, he trades his personal account or PA uh, quite well. He's a hedge fund manager. And he was like, yeah, man, I've been invested fully since December. You know, he's gotten into China, Korea, Japan, like all the things that have just been ripping uh, since the end of last year. And, you know, we, we follow the same sort of statistics. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, central bank liquidity has been increasing, I mean, off of a low. And I was like, well, what about like the, the Fed and quantitative tightening and the $100 billion a month and all these things? And he's like, well, you know, don't you remember this, what's going on with the Treasury General account? Like, yeah, I agree with you. They have to draw down, you know, five or six hundred billion dollars um, through this debt debt ceiling, you know, charade that they do every every couple of years. Is like, yeah, but like after they're done, then the Fed's still tightening and they, they still have taking hundred billion dollars out of the market. We said, well, yeah, well that's that's then. This is now, right? Let's just party on while the party's good. And you know, when you get to that point, you can sell, right? So you know, when we get to that end point where we believe that. You know, the, the all the confluent factors of liquidity either in the U.S. and around the world are pointing to, you know, a different direction, notably like less liquidity uh, in the global markets. You can always click the sell button. You can always, you know, take the money back into, into cash, into, you know, government bonds, whatever you, wherever you are in the world, which you can invest in. It's not like it's a put it in, you know, step away, never turn back and never sell again. I mean, I'm a bit lazier. I don't really trade around that much. So. I don't really like looking at my phone that much to look at the markets and, and do stuff. So I'd like to spy things and just forget about them for a while. But, you know, I, I understood what you were saying and sort of resonated with me like, okay, well, here's this period of time, a few months, and we believe and everyone is on this train of, okay, liquidity is improving. We know there's these technical factors of the money markets that are happening. And the Fed, you know, in Europe is something similar. You know, the European, uh, the EU is spending down its church checking account with the ECB. They did that starting, you know, last year. We have China and the PBOC, probably the biggest central bank who's adding liquidity. And then the BOJ continues to do stupid shit and print money like it's going out of style. So, you know, the central bank liquidity <clears throat> of the large, you know, banks around the world bottoms sometime in Q4 of last year and has been, has been on an uptick. Now, could we have already exhausted that and it's very hard to go forward from here? 
that's a possibility. You know, obviously we've seen equities and risk kind of sag a little bit this week um, as people think that the Fed's going to get a bit more hawkish and they're going to increase interest rates. You've seen, you know, one year and two year treasuries, you know, close to 5% or a little bit above there. So it's definitely taking a shine out of the, out of the equity markets a bit. But I think we're sort of in this, you know, it's a battle right now. Uh, it's not as a clear cut for the for risk as it was in December of last year, but you know, on the <clears throat> on the whole, it still is, is you know marginally positive. I think. So it looks like there's a very interesting dynamic playing out because you've got the U.S., which is the market that we've all been focusing on, which is which is the West, and the U.S. is clearly tightening. And you know, more recently, there's been um, heightened fears that there's going to be no rate cuts this year. In fact, I saw now that the probabilities of rate hikes this year have gone to close to zero in terms of what what the analysts are forecasting. At the same time, you do have the Bank of Japan and you know China on this very, um, uh, I mean, they're putting money into the economy and they're doing it uh, pretty aggressively. In fact, I think I read somewhere that on one day they put in 90, on, I think it was a week ago Friday or two weeks ago Friday, they put in $92 billion into the market. And that's coincidentally the same amount that the Fed's trying to get out of the market every single month. China's put that in one day. And given that the fact that crypto is a very global market, don't you think that crypto becomes the beneficiary of this where, you know, maybe U.S. equities will suffer a little bit because, you know, there is tightening in the U.S. and the U.S. is going to feel the tightening. But globally, I guess that China and Japan are putting in much more liquidity than the U.S. is taking out, right? Yeah, but there's also the effect of like, a lot of these economies are still dollar economies. And so if, you know, if the dollar rallies from here, it's not entirely clear cut that crypto could escape that. Now, correlations have been declining a bit uh, recently between crypto and sort of like the NASDAQ and, and the S&P, which is a positive. We don't really just want to be tied to, you know, U.S. equity markets as you know, the end and be all of what the price means. But it's still when the dollar rallies, a lot of things, you know, don't work so well, uh, especially if you're a, a risk-based asset. So I don't think it's as clear-cut as that. You know, sixteen thousand dollar Bitcoin at twenty-four, twenty-five thousand dollar Bitcoin. It's not as easy of a trade to get on board at this point as it was a month and a half ago. But that's kind of stating the obvious. Okay, so so you also said something quite interesting. You said for now it's probably a good time to invest. Um, does that mean that that you believe that there may be another leg down that that we may get a leg up and then we could get another big leg down. You don't think that this is from a, a, a from a global point of view, you don't think this is, this is maybe a good opportunity to be buying up some cheap Bitcoin and some cheap Ethereum. Well, let's, let's imagine a scenario where all this money that's been co come back into the markets, you know, starting in Q4 of last year, it's not only going into crypto, crypto is a very small market, but let's say it's going into oil and natural gas, um, foodstuffs, all these sort of things that, you know, the plebs get really angry about when they go up 100% in their faces, right? And so, and then the central bank's like, oh, we eased off the pedal a bit. We kind of let these technical factors in the money markets stealth ease while we could proclaim that we are trying to tighten. And all of a sudden, inflation around the world is reaccelerating. And oh shit, we got to do something about it, which means we got to reverse what we, we got to get a little bit more serious about what we were saying. And you know, they all know these things. It's not like this is like rocket science about all these different factors of leading to more liquidity. They just choose to ignore them and proclaim that, oh, yeah, we're doing our job and tightening money because we have our little window over here. This is what we do. Whatever everyone else does is what everyone else does, right? But 
if you know oil prices back above 100 and you know natural gas in europe is spiking again all those sort of things go out the window and you could see um them change a little change their tone and rhetoric and actually possibly even tighten even more aggressively so i think that's the risk of if things get you know too hot in the commodity sector you could see more pressure on the central bankers to tighten money which obviously what? on the margin wouldn't be positive for crypto it's what? at these levels what do you think what do you think of what's going on with the inflation numbers i mean we had we had inflation coming down pretty aggressively and then in january we had a, an inflation spike um what do you think what do you think the the um the inflation scenario is do you think that this inflation scenario just had a little dip and kind of continues to go up or do you think that the fed's got it under control and it's just going to keep going down but just not as aggressively as it was going down before I mean, I think there are some technical factors that would point to inflation on just the number, you know, that the massage statistic that all these governments put out there doesn't really reflect reality that continues to possibly flatline or fall a bit. Now, I think that's going to be a, a fearic victory um, for governments if they think, oh, yeah, we, we crushed inflation. It's, it's come down. It was 8% and now it's 5 right? Well, I mean, let me know how many people are getting a 5% raise every year, right? So it. Five percent is still not a good number for the majority of people out there. And so while we might cheer it as the rate of change is going down and you know, the central bankers can pat themselves on the back and say they did a good job for you know six months of tightening versus 10 years of giving away free money, then I don't know. I, th I think it's a wave. And so we might have experienced a brief dip. And the next leg is going to be the leg that really crushes. Uh, and I think that's the leg that you know we have to be cognizant of whether how will Bitcoin perform in that sort of scenario will it be just tied to equity markets and possibly tired of money or does it sort of break out of this narrative of you know s p up one percent bitcoin up four percent kind of thing and you know can the s p go down to below three thousand and bitcoin hold its ground or rally like that's obviously what we want but it's not entirely self-evident that's what's going to happen in a high if we get back into a high inflationary environment so you do you think that you do think that we're going to get another leg up in inflation you do think that this I don't know the six percent that we're that they're talking about now. And if I look at the month on month, the month on month's pretty much flat. You know, it's like point one up, point one down. You do think that we're going to have another bounce in inflation? You don't think that the Fed's got it, got it under control? Absolutely, they have no control. I'm, no, not, and that is the Fed. It's it's none of these central bankers have control. You don't print, you know, however many trillions of dollars over the last decade and expect that it's going to be orderly when you withdraw it. Right? These are not symmetrical functions. Um, the same thing doesn't happen in the opposite direction when you take the money out. If anything, it's worse because if, if anyone has done bond math before, you know that the losses when you go from the lower, from 0% interest rates to anything higher is much higher than if you start at 4% and then you go to 6%. So it's, it's one of those sort of effects. And I think people don't really realize that, that the convexity in, in fixed income markets is completely, it's so destructive when you start at such a low interest rate and start raising them. Yeah, because the rate hikes have been super aggressive and now we're getting a forecast right now as it stands. And we're recording this on, on Thursday before Friday, but before the PCE numbers came out. So this may be a little bit inaccurate, but as we sit here today, there's a 76% probability of a, of a 25 basis point rate hike now in March. And then another, and there's a 24% probability of a 50 basis point rate hike in March. And that kind of, that, scenario kind of keeps going up in fact the market's looking at three rate hikes coming up back to back one of them being a 50 and other other ones being 25 basis point rate hikes where do you think these this interest rate cycle peaks 
I have no idea. I don't think it actually really matters. Um, I think it'll, it's going to peak when they break something. As and I think I'm not the only one who said this. I think that something that's going to break is, at least from the Federal Reserve perspective, is something's going to break in the U.S. Treasury market. Right, right now we have the Treasury on hiatus in terms of issuing stuff. They can't really do much because you know they have to get this debt thing out of the way. The people that I've spoken with think that this will sort of come to a head in late summer, right? So sometime July, August, you'll have this whole political drama in the U.S. And, you know, the Democrats and Republicans will go head to head. They'll talk about how they care about fiscal restraint and blah, 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 blah. And at the end of the day, they'll raise a debt ceiling, right? Because at the end of the day, if the U.S. government was going to default on the risk-free asset of its of the Western financial system, then it's game over. And I don't really see what point that would make for America, given that they run the system. So at the end of the day, there'll be a bunch of song and dance, and this will get resolved by the end of the summer, as it always does. And then the Treasury has a lot of work to do, right? Fiscal year 23, one to $1.2 trillion fiscal deficit has to be financed by the Treasury. So now they're issuing debt, they're issuing debt. And the Fed is tightening. Not only are they removing $100 billion a month, but if inflation hasn't gone down to where they think it's reasonable or it's not the trajectory isn't where they want it to be, then they're also raising rates as well. And so why would you be buying bonds? You know, Japan's not buying bonds anymore. China's not buying uh, U.S. Treasuries anymore. If you look at foreigners in aggregate, uh, purchasers of Treasuries, it's been declining for you know over two decades or over almost two decades um, in terms of the percentage of ownership of the market. And so these these people who are usually to be counted on to buy U.S. paper are on strike. And so then what happens? The price of money goes up. And we know in a very high, highly financialized economy, when the price of money goes up, that creates issues. Now I can't you know know exactly what that issue is going to be, but I would imagine that um, it's going to be quite unpleasant. And we know that the Fed caves every time there's something quite unpleasant in the fixed income markets. They did it in 2020. I don't know where it's, what's going to happen. I think it's something's going to happen this year. But before you get to that point, everything crashes because they need to see clear evidence that, oh, fuck, what we're doing is causing immense harm to financial markets. Therefore, we must reverse it. Um, but that means that you still lose money before they reverse it. So, I mean, you're painting quite a, a bleak picture until something breaks. But at the same time, you're along knowing that something is going to break and it may even break before the end of the year. Like, how do you, how do you reconcile that? So, I mean, you, you have to put your hat on, like, okay, I have a long-term position in crypto, right? And I believe in the, in the long-term fundamentals of uh, what I'm investing in, uh, and whether that's like, you know, free money, Bitcoin, the world's best decentralized computer, Ethereum, right? Those are my two core positions in, in crypto. I have a dabbling in some other things, you know, that I've talked about that earn some yield. And I'm perfectly happy to hold those if they go up or down 50, 75%, whatever. It doesn't really matter. What I'm more concerned about right now is I have a bunch of capital that's earning 5% in treasuries. What do I do to maximize returns, right? Should I be ditching that safe 5% and going more into crypto, which, okay, yeah, it could rally 20, 30% from here, but it could also drop another 20 to 30%, right? There's that risk. So what I'm concerned about is my marginal capital because I'm already invested in crypto. It's a little bit different if somebody says, I'm coming straight into crypto. Okay, what do I do? Well, what's your time horizon, right? If your time horizon is a few months, then it's a lot, uh, it's very murky. It's unclear what to do here. If your time horizon is 10 years, then the best time to buy was yesterday, right? So I, I think it really depends on the, the person and 
what they're what they want to get out of this investment and where they are in their cycle with their own portfolio. So, I mean, there's, there's two schools of thought. The one school of thought is that, you know, we're, we're entering a new bull market and I'm, I'm going to, we can go through what would potentially be driving this bull market. The other school of thought is that this is a little echo rally, an echo bubble rally. And, you know, similar to it's going to go up and it's going to come straight down. You're of the second school of thought. If I'm, if I'm getting this right, you're saying that this little run from Bitcoin from 16,000 to 25,000 or whatever, wherever Bitcoin is now is actually like a, an echo rally and is going to come back down at some point. I think that Bitcoin has not truly escaped its correlation with global risk assets. It might have recently have done quite well on this little bounce up from, you know, sub 16,000 to 24,000. But I do think we're in store for a correlation one moment by that meaning that everything goes down massively together, um, Bitcoin including. Do I think it's going to break the lows of the FTX saga? No. Um, could it break 20,000 for sure? So, but I am looking for another leg down in, uh, in Bitcoin to, cor to correspond with general risk markets. And then once that's finished, then I'm super bullish uh, on, on the space, even if it, everything else is, is going to shit, because I believe in the response of what the monetary and fiscal authorities will do in another unpleasant situation. They'll hand out money to people and they'll print it. Oh, well, let's talk about handing out money to people and printing it. And I think let's talk about what's happening in China today. China is handing out money to printing and to people and printing and printing and printing. Japan, as we said at the beginning, is is putting more money into the economy than they've put in in a long time. They're taking emergency measures to put money into the economy. What do you think the effect of, of that is? Um, with China, it's a little unclear because if you look at China, their issue is that they have essentially blown one of the most the biggest property bubbles in human history, something like 20% of, uh, of apartments are vacant uh, in China. And, you know, most people's financial worth is tied up in some sort of uh, real estate, whether that's individual people, corporates, um, you know, the local governments um, below them. And so, you know, Beijing realizes they can't continue this forever. They, they're, you know, debt to, debt to GDP is somewhere like 250 to 300 they're reaching the capacity of the of the domestic Chinese economy to profitably absorb this debt. And what I mean by profitably is if I invest one renminbi of debt, I get more than one renminbi of productive stuff uh, after the life cycle of that debt. I think we long ago exhausted that sometime in 2008, 2010. And now they've just been, okay, well, we're on this road. People expect the property prices to go up. Everybody owns property. If we disappoint them, then we have issues, right? And so the Chinese government had the three lines policy uh, starting, I think, in you know, 2021 or whatever it was, which led to basically the bankruptcy of some of the, all the largest uh, real estate developers. And then people were like, okay, wait, I don't, I shouldn't be buying these things anymore. I shouldn't be trusting that the developer is going to deliver this apartment on time. And now they've reversed course, right? Okay, Xi Jinping is saying to the PBOC, pump the, pump the money, make sure that the property market is stabilized. Right. So is the money just flowing out into the global economy to, to buy stuff? Possibly. Maybe there's some sort of capital flight out there, you know, from risk Chinese people who now can travel who are trying to get assets out. I don't know. I don't really have a good metric on that. But I wouldn't say that it's uh, entirely evident that this capital is going to be exported because they have such a, a dire need for things to, to prop up their property sector. Um, and it's very hard for Chinese people on shore to buy Bitcoin, 
right? There's obviously emerging things going on in Hong Kong, and maybe there's a thesis out there that China is going to use its foreign savings in U.S. dollars to sort of acquire Bitcoin to diversify. I, I put forward a theory about that in one of my articles, but I think at the end of the day that the Chinese liquidity will end up more probably in property sector and Chinese equities more so than crypto because it is still very difficult onshore in China to buy uh, crypto. And then in the J Japanese situation, um, I think that, you know, as and when the ordinary Japanese person starts to feel, you know, the effects of $134 yen, um, oil price that is pretty stubborn and doesn't really fall too much further from here, possibly goes higher. Then they're going to say, well, why, why am I holding these yen? Why don't I buy some Bitcoin, some gold, some whatever, anything other than holding this, this yen with, that yields, you know, at the 10 year, was it 50 basis points versus what they can earn in, in somewhere else, 5%, 6%, whatever it is. So I think these, these things are not, it's, it's a slow moving thing. Obviously, an aggregate, it's sort of, we've bounced off of the apocalyptic lows of last year of, oh my God, the central banks are just going to remove all the money. Now we get to more of a rational response of like a where do we go from here kind of thing. So I read this tweet on the 9th of Jan, and it's a, it's a narrative that's been playing out in the markets that says, I believe China and Asia will fuel the next run. It'll take quite some time to melt US cynicism towards this space, but the East is ascending and yearning to flex. You should be hanging out in WeChat chat. Many future pumps will be on coins, none of your circle know. And now we're seeing that really play out. We're seeing it very similar to 2017, where you're seeing these crazy pumps of what we call Asia coins, so the, the coins that are in favor in Asia. And it does feel like, like there's a lot of demand coming from the East. And I don't know if it's exactly China, because I think you correctly mentioned that it's harder to buy coins on the China man, mainland, although we know that a lot of trade is coming from there. But it does feel like China, uh, Japan, uh, Korea is leading the charge in this in this rally, right? Well, I mean, it's as a, as a, as a, on a macro standpoint, if you, if you think about like what does Asia Bloc really want to do? They want to de-dollarize, right? They don't want to. They trade a lot with each other. Why are they using the dollar for all this trade? Why are they saving? Why is Japan and China and South Korea and Taiwan and all these countries? Have all these massive amounts of dollars that they're that they've saved over the years because they've essentially exported stuff to um, to the West, um, and now they're trading more amongst each other. Um, do they need all these dollars anymore? Should they be diversifying into other financial assets? No, I think you know, and I think a derivative of that is what's going to happen with you know the individual person that do they want to own. Uh, you know, U.S. stocks or you know whatever, or do they want to own national things that are in their region? whether that's cryptos that are favored in their communities or it's domestic equities. So I think we're going to see a transition from, you know, the monster rally of, you know, fangs and U S tech and all the, all the great things, all the those big companies from like 2010 to 2020, not that they're not going to go up they're just going to underperform versus everything else because the rest of the world is like, okay, well we, we trade enough amongst each other. We don't really need to, buy all this American stuff. We could buy Japanese stuff or Korean stuff or Chinese stuff, right? It's that, I think global. that's the narrative. Yeah, global stuff, anything, <clears throat> everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, so, I mean, we are we are seeing right now, we are seeing this rally kind of, I mean, if you look at the volumes, the volumes are kind of being led in the East. There was a big announcement by Hong Kong. Um, and I'm wondering, I know that you you have strong ties to Hong Kong. I think you, that's where you spent your banking days, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. 
So what do you think of, I mean, you've seen Hong Kong and you've seen the rise, the previous rise, and probably you can say the fall of Hong Kong, which happened probably over COVID. And now they're having announcements that, you know, they're becoming very crypto friendly. What, what do you think's the backstory there? Well, I think if you take a step back and think about Hong Kong as a financial hub, um, there's always this existential question of like, why should I, if China owns Hong Kong, and we know it does, it has since 1997, uh, and in 2047, technically they will become one, you know, but if, if China owns Hong Kong and Hong Kong is very expensive, not only for talent um, and, you know, real estate and everything, why don't I just go to Shanghai? Hong Kong's entire existence, Hong Kong's just a rock with illegal arbitrage. And it wouldn't exist if there wasn't, you know, China on one side and the West on the other. And they sort of meet in Hong Kong and it's given Hong Kong this value. But if it's super expensive and China's opening up and um, it's, you know, why don't I go to Shanghai? Because I'm in China, I get mainland employees at a cheaper rate. I don't have all this political issues um, of, of what is Hong Kong and what do the Hong Kong people mean and what does being a Hong Kong person mean. And I'm, I'm right there in China. But after, as we've seen with COVID, right, they've sort of, you know, very clearly said, okay, there, it's mainland China and then there's Hong Kong and Macau. Even though they're technically part of part of one, the COVID policies differed greatly um, between what happened in the mainland and what happened in Hong Kong. Even though a lot of things that happened in Hong Kong were not very appreciated by the international community, it was nowhere near as draconian as it was in China. And you know, as we've seen Xi Jinping, you know, basically create his uh, his new Politburo and you know replace certain people, it's been it's become very clear that. China mainland is very closed off from the rest of the world, but Hong Kong, I think, is going to return to, you know, what it was probably in the late '90s and early 2000s as this test bed, right? And they're going to allow things to happen in Hong Kong that they won't allow to happen in mainland China. For example, crypto regulations, right? There are no crypto exchanges in China. There's no license to be had. There are apparently licenses to be had in Hong Kong, and they're they're trying to make it easy for foreigners to get visas. You know, they want tech talent. They're doing all these things to attract people into uh, the city state. Um, and I think that there's been a concerted effort to say, okay, you know, Shanghai's off. Shanghai is going to be China, right? But if we want to have this melting pot, we'll go back to letting Hong Kong do a little bit of this different thing. And especially now that the political thing has been settled, right? There is no more, you know, Hong Kong. You're part of China. Xi Jinping is the boss. The chief executive, John Lee, he reports you know, he doesn't purport directly to Xi, but um, there is no sort of like independent way of Hong Kong doing things that's not approved by Beijing, which I think is positive if you think that Hong Kong is now introducing crypto because there are lots of ways that capital can move between both centers legally and in, in the Chinese system. And so I think that there is a strong possibility that Hong Kong could reemerge as this hub of China facing the world, especially in this new way of crypto, because at the end of the day, the goal of an upstart is not to just take the Western financial system and import it into Hong Kong, but try to create something new. And so I think that's what Hong Kong could represent in the future. There are a lot of speculators and they're usually crypto speculators. So they're usually very bullish in crypto, but they're looking at this and going, you know, the U.S. is and the West is clamping down on crypto with extreme regulation. And this is China's response to say, you know, what, if you're going to regulate it, we're going to we're going to we're going to embrace it. You think, you think those guys are going a little bit too far, though? I, I don't think that has anything to do with that sort of narrative. I think that um, <clears throat> I mean, my, my one theory is that 
this is a way for China to get partially address its problem of having too many US dollars in its savings account and allow people to acquire Bitcoin in a way they can control, right? Because if you look at the types of products that they're talking about, it's not, hey, let's just buy some shit coins and let the Chinese people go wild in Hong Kong. No, it's, oh, we're going to have some ETFs. An ETF is not Bitcoin. An ETF is, you know, a very politically connected money manager who is allowed to buy Bitcoin on your behalf, stick it in this fund, and you earn a financial piece of it. But it has none of the amazing attributes of what Satoshi put out there. It's not decentralized money. It's a financial asset, right? It's not real Bitcoin, but it behaves, but people think it is. Um, so these are the types of products that I think are going to be championed because if all of China's Bitcoin, it's just held in a bunch of ETF managers who are Chinese asset managers, then great. That's perfectly fine. The, there's no real financial freedom that's been achieved. It's just been everyone gets the financial return of Bitcoin um, and gets diversify out of other types of assets that they would have otherwise owned, like equities from around the world. So I don't think people shouldn't get this idea that this is some like, you know, freedom loving thing that is in you know contrast to another country. No, there's very specific ways to do this that you maintain control, but have the appearance of having some more financial leeway for people who can get returns on different assets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So listen, I've been following your your calls on Twitter, and I've been following obviously all your blogs and, and stuff like that. And I, I see that you very centered around a whole lot of narratives. So, so obviously, the big narrative that you're centered around is obviously Bitcoin, and you've been a Bitcoin guy since since the beginning. Um, you seem to be very much an ETH maxi in terms of smart contract blockchains. Um, yesterday, actually, we had Sandeep from Matic on our show. And I actually have to play you a, a quick clip because I think it's just pretty cool. Someone clipped it from our show, but this is what he said. Um, I am very clear and I have multiple times talked about my thesis also that I don't think there's going to be multi-layer two environment. There'll be a layer one environment. There'll be one single layer one, which is Ethereum in my mind, on top of which all of these layer two where the user activity will happen. Wow, that's that's a big statement. So you believe that Solana, uh, Aptos, Avalanche, uh, and Cardano, you believe that in time those will all eventually become very small or, 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 or I mean, yeah, um, even now, not really relevant it, re relative uh, to Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. If you see even now, like, you know, everybody is there for last two years and, uh, uh, you know, I don't see any significant traction on any of these uh, chains. And, uh, you know, like, otherwise we are like, you know, multiple layer two solutions you would have seen looking at uh, some of these layer ones. So we like I absolutely don't uh, feel that anybody has any, any chance to compete with Ethereum anywhere. What do you think of that? Is, is that the same thesis that you hold? Uh, yes and no. I think Ethereum, when they switched to proof of stake, um, actually diminished their diminished its attractiveness, uh, and only because it's unclear whether the proof of stake move is just going to centralize validation in the hands of very few. And as we know, if you know, and if they're un in one particular um, jurisdiction, that could cause issues. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't really matter what the jurisdiction is. If everyone's in the same place and they claim to be a decentralized global computer, that's bullshit. And so I think by introducing proof of stake, Ethereum has created an issue for themselves. I don't know if they're going to solve it or not. We'll see. Um, it's definitely something that um, I'm very focused on is decentralization of, of staking and can that actually be achieved? There's some interesting companies that I'm investing in that are that are doing that, but it's not entirely self-evident that proof of stake is going to lead to an actually decentralized environment versus a proof of work 
um, situation. And that's my biggest worry for Ethereum. Do I think it's going to stop Ethereum from going to 10,000 in the next or whatever, some ridiculous valuation in the next bull run? No. However, I do believe that there's going to be some killer app on Ethereum network that if Ethereum is not, you know, enough, <clears throat> has not achieved a sufficient level of decentralization and the validation of transactions, that this app will get killed um, by some government actor and the community will wake up and realize, hold on, we just invested a bunch of money into, you know, you know, web 2.0 on steroids, right? Which so, fine, say if that's what you wanted. If that's what you wanted, that's cool. But I think that that diminishes a lot of the value uh, of what Ethereum is trying to be trying to become. And at that point, I hopefully I've got out of my position. Okay, so right. So when you say Ethereum point of uh, uh, proof of stake is not decentralized, you mean because because Lido has a sixty or seventy percent market share in terms of the pools? You mean because Coinbase is a centralized entity? Do you not make a distinction between the cent the decentralized staking pools and the centralized staking pools? I mean, I would call shenanigans on whether or not Lido is actually that decentralized. It's a bunch of Silicon Valley VCs who came together and funded a project, right? Is it really decentralized? I don't know. We'll find out. But I, I think I pointed this out in one of my articles um, uh, you know, maybe five or six months ago as, as a point of issue. I don't think the market's going to care about it for, for a while because there's, no, there's not going to be a catalyst to care about it yet right and so once we get that catalyst hopefully we're not at the point where lido is 70 percent, or there is a way that lido doesn't really have all this concentration risk attached to it and i know there's some startups out there that are working on how do we sort of <clears throat> address these issues so uh, i mean i hear you that lido is not decentralized but i mean the way that they stake is decentralized you cannot go to to a specific validator right so, I mean, you know, there is decentralization. You're saying that the decentralization may or may not be sufficient. And over time, we'll find out if the decentralization was sufficient enough. And that'll probably come in the form of a government test uh, when they go for one huge killer, killer debt, right? That's, that's my thesis. Okay. So you also mentioned that you invested in some companies that, that are trying to solve this. What is the solve for something like this? I mean, is the solve for everyone to run their own node and have 30 have 32 Ethereum, not practical. Well, how do you solve the problem? Um, so there's some uh, infrastructure players out there that are trying to solve the issue of, can I keep control of my coins but delegate, delegate staking, right? Why do I have to basically send all of my coins into one uh, smart contract like, like Lido, right? Um, <clears throat> there's other ways that people are thinking about, let me get the exact phrase here because I don't want to fuck this up. <laughs> I actually looked at this before the call. Love it. Uh, da, da, da. Distributed validator technology. So <clears throat> basically allowing, you know, it's not just one particular node making all these decisions. I'm probably fucking this up, but um, that that's just, that's essentially sort of what I'm going for is like, okay, there's a problem. There's people that they recognize a problem. Can we fix it before that actually becomes an issue that, you know, affects the price of Ethereum. I don't know. Me, it's, I think we've, we've opened up a can of worms. Let me throw something at you. Let's open up another can of worms. Do you think that there would have been a space for an Ethereum fork that kept the proof of work chain? We had the ETH POW or ETHW, whatever you want to call no. it. No. I don't think so. So you don't think that there's a need for a smart contract proof of work blockchain that is slower? Oh, absolutely. And 
I think there's a need for it. I don't think the people wanted it, right? Everyone was on this ESG bullshit narrative. Everyone was on, okay, proof of stake is, is better, blah, 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 right? The the Ethereum Foundation had a, you know, Vitalik and whoever, they wanted to do proof of stake. They wanted to do it since day one. And they've been very successful, um, you know, in their politics and their organization at being able to accomplish that. Nothing, there's a shade on that. It's been very clear they've wanted to do this from day one. I'm just saying that, I think they've introduced a risk factor here because of what has actually happened in the market. You know, when they went, when the merge happened, it was Kraken's Coinbase and Lido was 70 odd percent of, of people who were, were in charge of validating transactions. Now, hopefully that doesn't, you know, remain the case. We have Shanghai upgrade coming in soon. There's all these, there's competition in the space because, you know, if you look at token terminal, Lido is generating a fuck ton of revenue from what they're doing. So it's not as if there's not competition coming from them. We'll see. I don't know. Um, okay. I just think that's risk factor. Do you, So does that mean that you don't think that any proof of stake chain can take the lion's share, but we need something else that is more decentralized, not like Ethereum? Because I think where I'm going with this is the last time we spoke, you told me that you don't believe that a Solana or a Cardano has a chance in the next bull run and at the time you said, oh, well, you know, in this bull run, it was cool because they were faster and they were cheaper. But what happens in the next bull run? Well, what's their selling point in the next bull run? Do you still hold that thesis that that all these other chains, Avalanche, Cardano, Solana, don't don't really have as bright a future as an Ethereum? Absolutely not. I think they're all dog shit. I think they, that dog shit. It's like a, you know, like a bouncy ball. You drop the ball, it bounces. It doesn't bounce as high, right? So we bounce high on the, the first one. We bounce again. It's not going to bounce as high on the next one. It might, it's going to go up, for sure. You know, if you bought it at the if you bought Solana at two hundred and fifty dollars, are you going to see that price again? Probably not. Um, so I think that's that's the issue because what's their what, again? What was their selling point? We were faster than the Ethereum. That was a narrative back in the day. We're not going to have the crypto kitties crash our network. We're the game network. We're the this. We're the that. Blah blah blah. Half of them just in, just put an EVM in so that everyone could just port over their smart contract code from Ethereum so they could run on each other. Oh, great. So like, I, I don't think that any of these, these things like actually have any real value to, you know, to take out their previous all time highs. If, you know, but that doesn't mean that there's not another narrative of L2s, whatever the people think that is the problem of this cycle that claim to, to solve. And then they pump hard, right? I want to find yeah. those. You're I don't know what my, those are yet. You're reading my mind because I see that you're narrative investing. I mean, I see that you're big into the GMX and, and you know, the narrative of uh, decentralized perpetuals. We'll talk about that. I see that you're a, an NFT degen. Last time you came on the show, you spoke about X2Y2. This time I see you, uh, I see accounts moving around uh, around Blur and I saw your, your your tweet around how your vision is blurred um, in, in, in the snow. Um, so, so I can see that you're narrative investing. So let's actually talk about a few narratives. Let's talk about the ETH layer two narrative. It seems that th this is the narrative of this next run. It is... Matic, ZK, Starknet, Arbitrum, etc. Do you think that this is the narrative? Do you think that now Ethereum becomes this base layer and then we're getting all these layer twos? And actually what's more important is the layer twos now because, because that's where the real well, opportunity is. Well, I guess the question, yeah, they're super important. Um, the question is why do you need a native token on a layer two? What does the token do? From an investing side, we're trying to make money here. Like I get the technology and there's different ways of doing it. Some of these guys have tokens, some of them don't. Everyone's awaiting, obviously, the Arbitrum token. Are they going to do it? Are they not going to do it? My question is, like, what is it actually going to do? Is it that I'm going to have to spend 
gas in the Arbitrum token or whatever token of the L2 to give it inherent value? Or is it just some token that they launched to get dumbasses to give them money? And then when they figure out that actually there's no tie to any economics of this thing, then the thing falls faster than a lead balloon, right? So like, I, I don't know what the tokenomics of some of the, these projects are. That doesn't mean that they don't pump because people suspend cash flow analysis and just say, oh, everyone's using L2s, L2 launch token, number go up. Okay, great. But then how do I connect back to what's actually happening? I mean, I see L2s as, as L1s plugging into a separate, plugging back into Ethereum. So, you know, the, the value that's captured on Arbitrum needs to be captured in a, a certain way. And the way to capture it is by launching an Arbitrum token. Do you but what is it, what, I guess they launched the token, but then what is the why do I need the Arbitrum token? Do I need to spend the Arbitrum token as gas every time I want to do a transaction on the L2? Okay, if that's the case, then I get the value. But if it's not that, then how do I get value I as a token holder? I guess that's the case, and maybe governance. If if that's you know you, you get a vote as to which which direction the Arbitrum chain or layer two will eventually take. I guess that's you don't really the, sound that confident. <laughs> 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 a lot of maybes and ifs out there. I have no fucking idea, but I think yes, I do believe that this could be a narrative of people saying, "Yeah, L two is the thing." Rah rah rah. Are you investing in L2s? I have not made any investment in L2s, no. I mean, are you watching it and saying when the Arbitrum token launches, I may buy some Arbitrum. When when the StockNet token launches, I may buy some of that. Are you watching that or not? I'm not watching it, but if it launches and I hear about it, I'll, I'll ape into it just for YOLOing. Like, it's like I, I, if it's a, if it's a going up stock, then I want to be going up with it, right? And but I don't fundamentally believe in any of these things if they don't have any real tie back to the economics of the L two. And I, you know, as we've discussed here, we have no fucking clue what these things actually do um, <laughs> in terms of like how they connect back to transaction volume uh, on the actual L two. So in my mind, unless there's a clear demonstration of like, okay, ETH, I spend ETH. For a transaction, I get it. It makes sense. There's an economic reason why it has a value. This other okay, stuff. Okay, let, 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 let's, go into, let's talk. Look, let's talk into airdrops. So we're expecting some huge airdrops. We're expecting the Arbitrum airdrop. That's going to be huge. If I look at the Blur airdrop, the Blur airdrop today is valued at four hundred million dollars. So that was a free money airdrop onto the market of four hundred million dollars, and I think that that caused a little pump in the Try market. Try selling that. I have. I have. I mean, I have, and I, I, it was great. I mean, I sold, I bought. Um, there's, there's, there's lots of liquidity for it. I mean, do you think that uh, um, Blur did the airdrop of $400 million into the market? It made people feel richer. They started spending. Some of them started selling. Some of them just started selling other stuff because they were so rich all of a sudden, and that propped up the market. Now we're getting Arbitrum. Arbitrum is going to be leagues bigger than Blur. Right, I mean, if Blur dropped airdrop four hundred million dollars, Arbitrum's airdropping a billion dollars. Don't you think that has a big effect on the market when you all of a sudden introduce free money, airdrops, helicopter money onto the market? Do you not think that that alone could take Bitcoin to like a thirty thousand dollar level? I know I it could, but so we go. What you going to sell your Arbitrum and go buy some Bitcoin? Possibly. Just prop up the whole market. The, the way I see it, the way I see it is, and I watched this when the blur airdrop happened. The market has very little liquidity at the moment. If you all of a sudden drop four hundred million dollars in people and say you're four hundred million dollars richer, people start spending it. And I think that one thing that the market is not really uh, um, 
taking into account is we're about to get some really big airdrops. I mean, uh, um, Arbitrum is one of them, but you know, we're probably going to have a stocking airdrop maybe later down the line and a whole lot of ZK airdrops that are coming up. And that is, for me, it feels to me like that's stimulus. That It feels to me like that's bringing billions of dollars that didn't exist in the market and billions of dollars of value that didn't exist in the market back onto the market. And you know what the DJs will do? They'll sell it and start buying other stuff and start propping up the, st- the, the price of the whole market. I don't know. I, 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 I think that that's what's going to happen when the airdrop comes. I mean, it's an interesting sure. piece. I, I'll take it and do some analysis on it. I have not really thought about it. I think you should write. I think you should write a medium article about it. I think I, I want to be, you know, listed in, in one of the medium articles where, when you eventually get to, when you it's, eventually. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. I I have to do some like uh, look at other. This is the blur thing is an interesting example, like tracking addresses that receive blur. Like, what did they do with that blur? Right? They sold it, it on a spot. It doesn't matter, and I'll explain to you why. Because if if we between the two of us have a thousand dollars each, we have two thousand dollars. And we will spend as if we have $2,000, right? We will eat at restaurants where we can afford to eat to $2,000. All of a sudden, if someone drops another $1,000 for me and $1,000 for you, and we've each got $2,000 now, we've got $4,000 in the market, we're going to spend different. We're going to be bigger risk takers. We're going to eat at better restaurants, et cetera. And I think that that's the psychological thing that happens is people start to feel richer because they're getting this free money that actually really has value this time around. So like you look at Arbitrum, Arguably, Arbitrum really has value. So when you get that token, it's real value that's being dropped. No, Arbitrum has value. The token might not have value because the token might just be just a token that they just dropped on you. And it has value because we say it has value until we say, mm-hmm. oh, well, actually, there's no cash flows. There's no there's no like intrinsic use case for this thing in the actual operation of the L2. And therefore, at a certain point in time, the market gets collapses because you're like, okay, then what do I need this token for? I'm trying to think of another example. What's it was a very similar example. Is it like is it Adam? Is that the Cosmos token that has like no you don't you don't spend any you don't actually spend Adam for anything? It's just like okay, well then why do I own this thing like, as a speculative investment for airdrops? <laughs> they, exactly right. <laughs> so like where where an Adam token has gone no fucking where right? So hmm. like yeah. <laughs> right, let's talk about some other narratives. So I know that you're an NFT platform DJ. I mean the last time we spoke, I asked you about what what your one of your favorite tokens you said to me x2y2 is one of your favorite tokens it feels like you've also been quite active in blur what do you think happens in this nft marketplace race do you think OpenSea takes it all do you think that that there is a number two like all other big markets who, who do you think the number two becomes well i think right now what we're seeing is um the, the zero fee death spiral right so what does that actually mean what is the value that these platforms, both centralized and decentralized, can offer to NFT traders other than trading volume, right? So if Blur is 0% fee, I don't know if OpenSea is going to respond. And obviously, did. everyone's trading. Everyone's, everyone's, sorry? They did. 0% fees did. for a limited time. They did. Huh. Ah, it's always a limited time, right? Uh, we're going to make it up on volume, right? That's that's what they say. Uh, and, and so... Again, what's the value? Right? Luxury is going to face the same issue. All these, like, okay, zero percent fee. What are we? So then, and obviously, cost something to run these things. What? How are we going to make money? You know, centralized or decentralized? So I don't think it's entirely clear. Like, what it is? What's the special secret sauce of of these NFT marketplaces? Obviously, it's it's liquidity and breadth of listing. Um, but if I can list something in multiple places at the same time, I'm not sure if you can or not. Then, like, what is the what's the value proposition here? So as a space, do I think that 
the NFT like exchange business will make money. I'm sure they'll figure out a way to make money, right? There, there always is a way to make money off of trading. So what's well, your how that's gonna, What's your approach? What's my you approach? Back, you back none of them. I look back. at who's who's paying me money, right? You know, XTY two. I just took a look today. Um, they're yielding something like thirty five percent in in ETH. Luxray is yielding something like I don't know fifteen or twenty percent in ETH. Blur yields you zero percent in ETH. Opacity yields you if they had a token, I don't zero percent in ETH. So like for me, yeah, the blur is a fun trading thing. I can trade it, right? Going in and out. But if I'm gonna like set it and forget it, I want to be earning something for it. Uh, and if I'm earning a yield, I'm perfectly happy to take it. And when I stop earning a yield, then I'm gonna have to adjust my uh, you know what I hold. Even and where even if you're earning yield out of token emissions, you don't really care that it's not real yield, that it's actually... I don't it's, I don't look at the token emissions. I look at the actual hard currency emissions, right? So, like, obviously, if you look at some of these yields, they're higher than that because they say, oh, yeah, I'm giving you some free tokens. That's cool. That's a bit fugazi. I just want to see what am I making in ETH. Yeah. Let's talk about some other narratives. So, you're a big fan investor in, in GMX. Um, been watching your, your tweets. You, your background is is uh, centralized perpetuals. Now it seems to me like you're very much a fan of the decentralized perpetuals. You talk a lot about uh, GMX. I don't know if you. I mean, is that is that your favorite horse in that race? For now, it could change. Um, it pays a good yield. I got in at a good price. You know, my effective yield is very high. Uh, they're doing you know very good volume, whether number two or number three, depending on the day. I think uh, of derivative dexes out there uh, <clears throat> it's actually you know trying to be decentralized i consider dydx kind of a hybrid model neither here nor there and the dydx token pays you nothing so not really attractive to me as an investor um so that's why i like gmx and there's going to be some other copycats out there that do the same thing and you know, maybe they're going to offer attractive yield as well and maybe i'll invest in them too do you ever consider that uh, gmx is not a, a order book uh, Dex, but it's an Oracle-based decentralized uh, perpetuals exchange, which means it gets its price feed from centralized exchanges. Does that like? Do you? I mean, for me, fundamentally, when I think about a market, I like a market to be made up of buyers and sellers, and I like the buyers and sellers to be on one order book, and I like the price to be dictated to by the buyers and the sellers. And I just I, I worry about decentralized perpetuals dexes that are reliant on centralized exchanges for their price feeds. I don't know. I just, I just something doesn't fit for me there. Right. And so again, there's nothing that's not perfect. None of them are, are perfect. But again, again, I'm focused on the yield. It trades a bunch and it trades it. It's a different type of product, right? If you think about what GMX and a lot of these um, competitors do, it's like they have a central liquidity pool. That liquidity pool takes the other side of every trade. So it's almost like a swap book, right? I'm very familiar with those. It's different than having an order book where buyers and sellers meet. So it's a different product. So there, you know, there's definitely room for a decentralized order book product because you get a different type of pricing on that versus I want to just trade against this LP pool at a price for a particular size. And you're going to get a different fill rate on that. So I think it's a different, while they're called both, they both trade perpetuals, how they do it is very differently, is very different. And, you know, it's a fundamental way of achieving leverage. Neither one's any, right or wrong. Any other narratives that you're looking at? So NFTs, um, Ethereum, Bitcoin, perpetual per, per, perp dexes, decentralized perpetual dexes. Any other narratives that have really got your attention now? Where you're going like, wow, this is something that I really want to be putting some chips on the table. Mm. No, I mean, I'm just looking at. I put as I as I say in my my blogs. I pull up Token Terminal. Who's making money? 
right? Um, and that's where I want to be. I want to see usage. I want to see yield. I want to see fees. Uh, because at the end of the day, like speculating is hard, right? I don't want to stare at my phone all day. However, if I'm if I ape it to something, I know I'm going to make a certain. If I have a range of yields and I'm a tra- and I'm accepted, I accept those yields. Okay, mm. I'll set it and forget it for a bit, and I'm not going to worry about what the price does, because I know that people are actually paying real money to use the product, and I'm getting a portion of that. I like that. That's what I all want. Right, me, That's what I want to do all day long. Let me get to the the most important question of the day. Um, when I skied in Japan, I mean the skiing was great. The powder was phenomenal, but the après ski was. I mean, really disappointing. Like, I, I got to be honest. Like, the upright ski in Japan was kind of non-existent. Doesn't it, doesn't that like bother you? No, the power. If you if you're really shredding, you you know, you hop in the onsen for a bit, might have a few birus, and then you pass the fuck out, and that then you wake up and do it all over again. Oh man, I, no, I, I prefer skiing in Europe where you you have a couple of beers and and and, and then you go partying. And then you wake up after two hours of sleep, and then you hit the slopes again. And that's just the way I like to do. Listen, my friend. I mean, if you if if you get busy, just go to Tokyo. You know, that's that's the <laughs> for a party in Tokyo. I am uh, I'm envious. I won't lie to you. I'm really envious that, that you're spending so much time skiing. I really wish that I could be in your shoes. And so maybe just post some pictures and let us like live vicariously through you because it's, like, it's one of the things that I really love doing. I, I don't get to get to, specifically. I don't get to go to Japan skiing, but I haven't been skiing for a long time. So yeah, listen. Arthur, it's been fucking amazing having you here. It's uh, always good to catch up with you. Um, much love from me, but much love from the fam. And enjoy the, enjoy the slopes, my friend. All right. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Be well, my friend. Be well. Like, I love interviewing him. He's so full of alpha, but he's also such a genuinely nice guy. Unbelievable. And um, yeah, just uh, to you guys, much love. And remember that our Friday bands are brought to you by NordVPN. Just go, just go and support them, guys. They really do a lot for us and they keep your crypto safe. And it costs you $3.35. And you really should be protecting your cryptos at $3.35 a month. Listen, I'll see you guys again on Monday. But I may be here on the weekend if something happens. Um, Yeah, until then, have fun. Trade well.